1: You're listening to the world-famous God Whisperers. I'm Craig Denofrio.
2: I remain Bill Swirla.
1: Yes, you are. This is true. We have another white-hot, exciting day for you.
2: <laughs> We're uh, never going to cool off to red-hot, are we? No,
1: no, no. This is just... Uh, we may go into various colors. A, a rainbow of peace. One never
2: knows. <laughs> ha! You had to go there early, didn't you? It's the incredible incredible rainbow, rainbow, of heat. heat. You know, yeah. rain. No, heat. Heat basically shows up as red, red hot. White hot. That, that's you can you can get up to white hot too. That's screaming hot. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. But you ever hear about yeah. blue hot? Do you? Mm,
1: no, no. Blue is considered
2: cool. Red is hot.
1: You know what though? What? Um, in the way that they make fireworks, you know all about this.
2: Yeah, those are all about metals that they use. Metals. It's all and about the so metals.
1: I, I believe it's if you burn silver, it burns blue. Is it, is it silver?
2: Oh, uh, I I would have guessed silver. Maybe it's cobalt, molybdenum, molybdenum, or something, or copper. Copper maybe is probably green. No, when you burn Copper's copper, green. it's green. I yeah, I remember green. Yeah, the, these are these are um, hold you know brace yourself. These are ionically excited states. Wow. Oh. Uh, yeah, no, they're,
1: I'm, I'm feeling a little ionically ex- ex- excited <laughs> right I now. I remember these time. one of my or favorite I'm not sure.
2: One of my favorite things in in freshman chemistry was the qualitative analysis lab. That this was this was a, a great little exercise in uh, inductive reasoning first of all and elimination of possibilities. So you get an unknown which is just basically a vial which has a mixture of salts in it that only your lab assistant knows what it is. And then you have to identify all the components that are in there through a series of, of tests and isolations. But I remember you identified the metals by, by putting a little solution onto a wire loop and sticking it into a flame and looking at the color.
1: Sounds a little like chefs deconstructing uh,
2: recipes. Yeah, it kinda is. It's kinda like, you know, making <laughs> making that Caesar salad or whatever. But it was what I loved about it was that it was like a flow chart of activities because uh, you looked for certain things and then you precipitated stuff and isolated it, and then you tested for other things, but it was a, a sort of a diagnostic flow chart. And it, it was really a good exercise in, in inductive reasoning when I look back on it, which is how scientific method works. Anyway, more on that later, but it's kind of a good way to introduce that topic. But it was my favorite thing. And you didn't have to be super accurate. You just had to handle the materials well because you only got a little bit of it. And you didn't have to say how much was there. You just had to say what was there. So it's kind of fun. Wow. It was huge. It was really actually my favorite, absolute favorite lab in uh, freshman chemistry, qualitative analysis. They still do it today when, when you do like environmental testing, test the water for stuff. Hmm. Most hmm. of it is machinery now. Most, most of the chemistry that I, that I learned that we did on the bench, it's all done by machine now.
1: I'm sure the listeners can tell that you've lost me now.
2: <laughs> even even genetic sequencing. i blazing over. Even genetic sequencing. Glaze. I was talking to a, a young geneticist, and she was telling me that basically genetic sequencing now is basically sitting around and watching a machine do the work. <laughs> You know, when when this was the new thing, I mean, this was this was labor intensive. This was done by, by lots of lab techs at the bench. Now it's just a machine cranking twenty four seven. Yet another job lost to machinery. I like your style, dude. <laughs> hey, the anniversary of that movie is is I think it's been, but I'm told that next week, yes. uh, is going to be like like anniversary showings of this movie. Of the Big Lebowski, all over yeah, in theaters. I,
1: I saw something about it. I think one of the old theaters here in uh, Cleveland uh, are going to uh, have a showing. All, all those old theaters are now playhouses, and uh, but I think one of them is going to have some showings of the Big Lebowski.
2: So everybody kind of shows up in a bathrobe with a white Russian. <laughs>
1: you know, there have been uh, uh, Big Lebowski conventions where people show up and they, you know, they're dressed like.
2: Lebowski. And, oh, Big Lebowski, Lebowski cosplay? Yes. I
1: could yeah. I I could see so that. They they have uh, contests who looks the most like the dude and all this kind of stuff.
2: <laughs> who is who is the female in that? Uh oh man, the name eludes me now. Now I'm gonna have to look it up. But uh, she was the one that played uh um Julianne Moore playing Maude Lebowski. Oh, that was Julianne Moore. That's right. Julianne that. Moore playing yes. Maude. Wow, that was uh, that was just a magnificent performance. Yeah, yeah. And and, and John was, Goodman. Uh... John Goodman is Walter's <laughs> soap check. I don't roll on Shabbos.
1: You know. You, you know what? Just because we're talking about the Big Lebowski.
2: Attention. The following segment contains a home schooler alert. Attention the following segment contains a home schooler alert
1: you know just just because of the language in the movie in general yeah it's it, it would be
2: just the movie and in general
1: flying around uh,
2: yeah it's it's yeah. not going to be it's not going to be good not for the kids, <laughs> but John Goodman just rocks that role of Walter yes over the line. <laughs> <laughs> this is league
1: play. You're over the line. You know the thing that's amazing about that movie is they're hanging out at the bowling alley all the time, but the dude never bowls. Do you really, you never really, see, you never see him
2: roll? I don't think so. I'm I mean, he's sure. there. He's there all the time, but I, I'll have to look at it the I don't next think time. ever
1: you ever see him actually bowling,
2: I'll, I'll have to look at that the next time I view this. And I do want to view it in honor of the anniversary. Well, of course. Uh, but I, I'll be traveling next week, so I might not have an opportunity to you, do that. Are you going that.
1: anywhere good? You're speaking somewhere? No,
2: that? I'm just going to a regents meeting in St. Louis. Ah. Hot. In St. Louis? Muggy. Yeah. Once a in year, we are required. Regents? Yeah, we're required to have a joint. And I do mean joint uh, regents meeting. So last year was in Fort Wayne. This year is in St. Louis. So that's mm. where we're going. I get to visit friends I haven't seen in a long time. So that'll be nice. Yeah, visit and the I'm doing something very unusual. Um, I'm going to go by train
1: from California.
2: Yeah, really? Yeah. Uh, my buddy Wally. Uh, this was his idea. Uh, he took the train somewhere once, and he absolutely loved it. It was it was relaxed. It was not in a is, hurry, and you you talked to people. Bus
1: travel involved? No,
2: <laughs> unless it breaks down, and you never so you, know. You this you is go Amtrak. Pick
1: up the train in Los Angeles,
2: and you change trains in Kansas City. Really? And you go to St. Louis. Yeah. So no so bus the tracks in,
1: run straight from L. A. to Kansas City.
2: Yeah. Wow. In fact, there's a name for it. I forgot what it is, but it's it's the, the southwestern route is very well known, quite scenic. Although, unfortunately, we'll be doing a lot of the heavy duty scenery at night. Yeah, hmm. but we're you know what we're, where we got the idea from was uh, Anthony Bourdain's uh, train trip. I think it was a no reservations Quebec, where he and those two. Uh, Quebecois, those those chefs from Quebec, uh, were on the train, and they're breaking out caviar, truffles. They got a truffle shaver. They've got champagne. They're just bringing. I, it's I don't a think rolling to run in
1: sort of thing. Uh, accident. What? On um, on the train. What what about? It, it's not like a gourmet train.
2: We're bringing food. Oh, you're bringing. This your is, own is not gourmet. an airplane. You can bring all. You can bring whatever you want on a train. Now, you, you, is Karen going with you? No
1: okay so you going by yourself
2: no guys' trip Wally and I Wally's flying oh, Wally's out here doing it with you and okay. he and I are doing a Bourdain honor you know, we're paying homage so this is an homage to Anthony Bourdain we're taking the train from LA to St Louis he, yeah, he's, those,
1: those upper berths on Amtrak trains are like three feet long. <laughs> Just so you know. I'm prepared. Whoever's up there is gonna be curled in a fetal position.
2: Neither of us are tall men. So you got that going for you. You know, we're we're both on the on the height challenge side. So it's okay. It's gonna be okay. All right. But flying back, but but going by train. So he he told me that he was downloading the big Lebowski onto his computer in case we wanted to do a viewing while we're dining. So Mm.
1: it could be good. Very good. Very good.
2: Maude oh, like Maud Lebowski, Julie Ann Moore. Who can forget the performance?
1: Yes, that was uh, something
2: just amazing. So, quick <laughs> update: uh, How are things yep. in Cleveland?
1: Things in Cleveland uh, continue to be a little steamy, but steamy uh, good. Yeah, things things are mm-hmm. good. And, the Indians uh, still
2: in first place.
1: Indians are doing very well. They're having I've good got Tickets to go see the Browns.
2: Oh, the Browns.
1: <laughs> one, one, of my, one of my parishioners has season tickets. And, they actually sell uh, season tickets to the Browns? <laughs> they do. I don't think that they're terribly expensive these days. But <laughs> I think his are kind of this legacy. I think they were his father's or something and yeah. just kind of handed down kind of thing. But uh, uh, yeah, so uh, he's giving me his tickets for August 17th I think it is very nice and I don't even remember who the Browns are playing but uh, I'll be able to see at least one good team play I'm sure (laughs) that's like
2: being a Bears fan you know we understand we understand how that is
1: well we're very optimistic for the Browns this year Uh, they they could win at least one game one game yeah you know when you
2: have your sights set that low that a couple of wins is just a major season they'll have they'll have like tailgate parties for a couple of wins you know even actually if you they have just, tailgate parties all the time in Cleveland I, I've seen <laughs> I've seen Michael Simon do a whole thing on tailgating and boy they know how to eat oh, yeah, at a tailgate party
1: well the, the problem is there's no central parking lot so there are all these little parking lots all around the stadiums and and so you have to get down there a couple hours early to find the the cheaper parking otherwise you can pay 50 bucks for parking and uh so anyway it, it's kind of a kind of an interesting scenario but Looking forward to checking it out, and uh,
2: kind of nice. Got some free tickets. That sounds great. Yeah, that sounds really good. So I'm t- like I said, I'm taking the train to St. Louis, and then flying back. Hanging out. A lot of new restaurants opening up in St. Louis, so we're looking forward to that. That'll be oh cool. That will be good. Um, I think it's probably about time for the mailbag, huh?
1: Oh, all right. <laughs> The God God Whispers Mailbag brought to you by Choo Choo Trains.
2: Choo 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 Trains, indeed. Dear Manly Doctors of Divinity, what is your opinion of the pre-consecration of the elements of the Lord's Supper?
1: Hmm. Oh boy.
2: What is your opinion of the... Do you do that?
1: Uh, no. I, I don't. Have you
2: ever done that? Uh, even once,
1: not that I'm aware of <laughs> that sounds like an old blood donor question, doesn't it? <laughs> you, you know, we get into the question, there are kind of two camps on this, and as you well know, you know, you have your uh consecrationists and mm. then your receptionists, yes, and and it's uh, always I, in
2: I, camps, isn't it? It's always a yeah. binary thing, it. it, it You know, it's never just just a simple, or not, it's never just a sort of a complex issue that can't ease it, but it's either, you know, good guys, bad guys, red, blue, consecrationists, receptionists.
1: Well, and of course, what we usually end up with is the opposite of an error is an error in the opposite direction. And so, you know, this is... Is that in the Bible somewhere? It should be. I I might just staple it onto the back of mine, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know... There, there are these two thoughts. One is, and really, I think what it it really really comes down to is us trying to understand the mind of God a little too much, and uh, making declarations that we aren't given to made make. And and so the question really comes down to in the disposal of what's left over after communion, how do we treat it? And of course, this is part of the thing with pre consecration. Is uh, when is and is not the elements the Lord's Supper? Now that was yeah. The, well,
2: grammar, that's so. an interesting way of framing it. So you're you're looking at it in terms of a post-communion thing because that that ta- that tags along, right? Well, that seems and, to and be when
1: the issue comes up the most often,
2: we've had that come up before. What do you do with the elements after communion? Right. right. Opinions vary, but everybody pretty much goes with the idea: treat them in a holy way. Whatever you do. Uh, you know, just don't don't return them to the common vessels, whether bread or wine. Don't uh, dump them down the drain or throw them in the trash. But just treat them as holy, and don't say a lot because that's going to get you in trouble at some level. the The pre is the same. You know, you're right. It it is the same sort of thing. It's it's asking the question first of all: What is the exact nature of consecration? Consecration being taking the elements and saying the words, and right. and kind of maybe the question would be what happens at the consecration because i think the idea here with the so-called quote unquote finger quotes pre-consecrated elements is that a pastor person uh, consecrates the elements, gives them to deacons, lay ministers, elders, whomever, and they take those pre-consecrated elements, the bread and the wine, with the word spoken over them, they take those to shut-ins or people who couldn't be there, right? That's that's kind of the practice, as I understand it.
1: Yes, I believe so.
2: And I think that—not our agenda book, but I think that some agendas actually make provision for that— um, the question is well, and, that, what? and
1: that is also a, a historical practice. Is it? But I, I but I believe from what I remember of this is that the elders or deacons or whoever would then take the Lord's Supper from the altar directly to the shut ins, like during the service. So it was kind of a participation in the service. Uh, in abtantia kind of thing.
2: right okay yeah, I get that uh, but does that imply that the consecration lasts only a certain time period? Does it have an expiration date? <laughs> you know so quick get there if you're caught in traffic mm, it's fading you know hurry up
1: well, yeah or uh oh the closing hymn is now over it's no longer the Lord's Supper.
2: see a strict receptionist would say that it's it's consec well that and actually a strict receptionist would say it, it isn't really the body and blood of Christ until you receive it. So the, the principle they follow is keep the sacrament whole, which is not a bad principle to follow because a lot of these questions kind of arise because we're not keeping the sacrament whole. There's the taking of the stuff, the bread and the wine. There's the saying of the words of our Lord. There's the doing what the words command, eating and drinking, and now you've got the whole thing. But if you divide it, then you're going to open up questions that probably shouldn't be asked. Right. So this business with pre-consecration, there's a there's an implication. Well, let me let me can I let me do it this way. I, I think there are three issues. So can I parse it that way? Three issues. Sure. See what you think. First, there's the nature of consecration. What 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 do those words actually do? What's that about? Uh, two. The second has to do, I think, with the nature and the authority of the pastoral office. Can the pastor alone do that? Is he the only one? who can can say those words and do the act of consecration. And then the third is, is um, I think, it's the gospel necessity to hear the word. Because remember the big thing in the Reformation is these words need to be said clearly and out loud for the people to hear, right?
1: Yes. So right.
2: any scenario that would involve elements being consecrated away from the communicants and simply being brought to them, that one would have to be ruled out right away because the communicant did not hear the words.
1: Well, then you have usually, I think, the practice is that the elders or whoever brings you communion, the the assistants, will speak the words in the presence of the person.
2: Yeah, that's what I've seen. The... The rituals that I've seen that try to incorporate this would have the non-pastor taking the consecrated elements and saying to the person something to the effect of previously, six hours (laughs) ago, yesterday, whenever pastor so-and-so said these words— over right. these elements, you know, on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, etc. So, in other words, he repeats the words of institution as a narrative for the benefit of the communicants, so that they know that those words were said. But I still have, I'm still uneasy about that because it implies that. Um, there's some sort of mojo there's some sort of magic that went on where whenever it was wherever it was conducted by pastor so and so that now made these elements what they are and so they're giving a report on that e-
1: yes and i think you're you When we do these things, we start to open a can of worms, and things start to get a little stranger and stranger all the time. Well, Uh, whenever you divide, you either ditch the pastor altogether, or you you make the Lord's Supper into something different.
2: Exactly. That's why I say there are really two issues, and then a third. Uh, But the third is the gospel necessity to hear those words especially those words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Those are the faith-creating gospel words that our catechism says uh, you, you must have faith in, You know, and they create that faith. So that's really important. But if you leave that one out, you still have the nature of consecration and the authority of the pastoral office, right? Right. So I think it would probably be hanging the wheels in one ditch to say, oh, never mind, anybody can do it in a pinch, Okay. Do what? You mean consecrate? Consecrate. consecrate. So, you know, pastor can't make it, or say you've been vacant for a bazillion years, so one of the elders or just a well-intentioned layman from the congregation goes off, sees the shut-in, takes some bread and wine from home, consecrates it, and gives it to the shut-in. You know, then sort of the casuistic question there would be, does this person actually get the Lord's Supper?
1: well did that person have the authority to actually do that
2: yeah and authority is a funny word because it's not quite the same as power no you know in roman catholic circles it's about power that when you're ordained as a priest you receive this power to do this and it stays with you it's it's your it's it's a power that's inherent in your person you get some some kind of special mojo that allows you to do this so that an average layman, even if they said those words, couldn't do it because they don't have that power that comes with ordination. Now, we don't go down that road.
1: No. Well, not, no, not, not in such a way.
2: I think our road is much more like, if you could make an analogy to the civil sphere, it's like everybody as a citizen has a certain authority to enforce the law. But there are people by virtue of their office who are given to enforce the law on behalf of all of us uh, in in a public sense, right? So it's permissible to conduct a citizen's arrest but if, don't try doing this in the presence of a law officer, a law enforcement officer, because then you're going to be guilty of a crime too, like impersonating an officer or <laughs> or unlawful detaining of somebody. You know, your you know your problems are going to multiply.
1: Hey, hey, don't don't worry about this officer. I got it. Yeah, I got it don't, covered. Don't worry. I got I got this one. You, <laughs> we don't really need you to do this.
2: You ever see those shows? Yeah. They usually come on late at night, where they're they're basically making the argument that guns are really good because criminals get caught. Easier when pe- everybody's got guns. You, you, you know the kind of show, right? Do, I, yeah,
1: hmm? I'm not sure that I know what show you're. I forgot.
2: About. I forgot the name of it, but it it takes place in Florida. There's some county in Florida, I think the whole state of Florida, where you know you, everybody's got everybody's weaponized. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I remember one. I was just surfing surfing the channels, and I I dialed it. I was strangely compelled. Some guys, some guy tried to break into a guy's house, and the guy catches him and he's got a shotgun and so he's got the 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 thief the would-be thief face down in his gravel driveway with the shotgun pointed at his head And uh, along comes the deputy sheriff, everybody's on a first name basis, they know each other, and it's like, okay, Bob, good work, Uh, put the gun down, step away from the scene, you know, and Bob dutifully puts the gun down, steps away from the scene, and the uh, sheriff thanks him for uh, catching this perpetrator here, and kind of takes over and cuffs and stuffs him, and they all live happily ever after, except the would-be thief, right? Right. Right. So that's kind of a good example. The guy broke no laws. Uh, the, the the guy was trying to break into his house. In fact, was in his house, caught him, um, detained him, didn't shoot him, just detained him. Right. Police right. came, stepped away. Everything was was good. So you know, a good example would be um, emergency lay baptism. No pastor around, somebody needs to be baptized. Do it. Right. Now, you know, if there's a pastor around, or your pastor around, and say, ah, oh, never mind, I got this covered. <laughs> it's like, whoa, 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 who, who gave you that authority? That was uh,
1: you, my last year at seminary. There was a guy in, in the, uh, the uh, pastoral um, uh, ministry kind of uh, capstone course, you know, the practical course. Oh, yeah. And, and this bozo says... I think it's really really great when grandma and grandpa bring the baby down the aisle and they baptize the baby in front of the church.
2: <laughs> and I oh, I've I almost seen a
1: dozen very out of my seat at this one and I said I said why are you even bothering to study for being a pastor? You know what what's the point? And and I said you you're not Lutheran, I get over this. And of course, the professor said, "Now, now, now, Craig, simmer down." And and he looked at the other guy. He says, "You you might need to find a new denomination." But uh, they ordained him anyway. So you know, oh, of course the they did.
2: But <laughs> and he's probably doing that very thing today. Yeah, I've yeah. heard a bazillion variations on that theme, and that's that's what I would call the more specialer. Yeah, you know, it's just more specialer if grandpa and grandma did it. Um, yeah, whatever. So. Um, But it's a question of authority in office. But here's the the nickel question that tags along with that. If it's authority in office and not the person, can the person, may the person who is in office delegate that authority to another in the event he Ah, can't make it? Deputizing exactly, yes, exactly. Can, can we
1: deputize someone to do that?
2: Because that's the nature of authority. In fact, you know, the word apostle, apostolus, uh, goes back to a Hebrew office of the shaliach, the sent one, the one who is sent with authority. And there was a principle that if a shaliach, an authorized agent, couldn't complete his task, he could authorize another to do it in his stead. So in other words, B is functioning in the stead and by the command of A, but B can't make it. And so he authorizes C, and it actually goes back to A. C actually is an authorized agent of A through B. Kind of, You follow me? Yes. So isn't that really the nature of the pastoral office, is we're not apostles, but we have received this office... That was once granted initially to the apostles. Well, I, I guess because the apostles couldn't make it to all nations until the end of the age, <laughs> right? So, you know, we are under
1: shepherds as pastors. We we use the term under shepherd on a regular basis. So, I would guess that we are deputized to act on behalf of the sheriff, Jesus. Uh, so, do the deputies then have the power to deputize? Right, w- and, without or without ordaining and making them full fledged deputies. So, well, and, so, can the deputy have have a subling deputy
2: under him? And that's, I think, that's really the question. I, I think that's what's going on here. Because for me, and your mileage may vary. Tell me what you think. But for me, the best solution would be if it's truly not possible to uh, bring the sacrament, have the pastor bring the sacrament for whatever reason, that one or more suitable men from the congregation as elders, as deacons, as somebody, um, are deputized, authorized to do that specific task. Not to conduct the Lord's Supper wherever and whenever they please, but to do that specific task. And when they do it, they ought to do it the way a pastor would do it. They, they mm. should say those words as consecratory in the presence of the communicant. To me, this would eliminate all doubt and ambiguity. Well, uh,
1: I, you, you know, there's just so many different directions to go on this that it's...
2: Uh, I See, don't I think even the, know, the thing well, that makes well, it work is specificity.
1: Right. W- one of the... Things that I would lean to right away, I believe it was Luther's letter to the Bohemians, where he kind of makes it clear that there's no such thing as an emergency Lord's Supper.
2: But we're not talking emergency. We're actually talking shut-in,
1: which, by the way, Luther didn't care for. Didn't care for shut-ins? No,
2: did not care for shut-in communion. This was not a big practice in Luther's day. I don't know where it comes from, but in Luther's day it was not big. He saw it as a community thing. Yes. And if you weren't able to participate, then you rested in the participation that you once had. I'm going to go out there, I'm, I'm relying on memory, but I believe that Luther himself declined... Uh, communion on his sickbed. Now, granted, he had been in church on on the previous Sunday, okay. and yep. he had preached, and, and he, in fact, he was taken ill in the pulpit and didn't feel well, and he basically just kind of signed off on the sermon and went to sit down. So it wasn't like it's been months or years since he'd been in church.
1: Right. And, and I, I was just thinking, you know... Luther made statements that you should receive communion at least four times a year. I have a hard time considering you a Christian. Yeah,
2: but you know what that is? That's the old monastic thing where the monks had to show up at the cathedral church four times a year. They couldn't. Hmm. They couldn't basically create their own little diocese, and so though they communed daily in in the monastery, uh, and they certainly worshipped together all the time, they were obligated to show up at the city church four times a year. And so I think Luther just kind of grabbed that as kind of a minimum. But in Luther's day, there was a problem. People were not accustomed to going to communion weekly or even monthly, and so he's trying to encourage them to go more frequently.
1: So, why were they not in that custom i 'm a little confused by that one.
2: Well, I think two reasons. One is that you had to have gone to confession before you went to communion, oh. and so you there's a lot of intentionality about that yes, and I think secondly, uh, oh, you also had to be fasting, and so that kind of you know, changes the rhythm of the day too. And I think there was a lot of still residual for a long time, maybe even today, residual Catholicism that you weren't quite worthy, well prepared. That's what that fourth question in the Catechism is all about who's worthy and well prepared? That's why Luther comes out of the chute with fasting and bodily preparation or fine outward training, not going to despise those things but the key is faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. See, he's trying to get them to go more frequently because they feel they're not worthy to do it.
1: Okay. Um so what we ended up with in Lutheran history after this is well Luther says that you need to commune at least four times a year. So we'll have communion four times a year. Yeah, yeah, right. coming at the at the minimum here. Exactly. You know, and and wanna then wanna monthly
2: when we get really progressive and now if you're one of the really cool kids, of course, weekly. But but uh and that's what happens when you, when you set a standard like that, and right. your name is yeah. Luther. You, you, you become the new Moses, right? Right, the, the exception becomes the rule. And, and imagine it, uh, how many times do I need to receive the gift of immortality, the medicine that conquers my death, the very body and blood of Jesus, given and shed on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins? Uh, how, many, how many times do I need to get that? <laughs> You know, the question is just too weird to even think about, right? Now, if it's not available to you, that's another story. You live out in the wilderness. There's no church. Maybe a traveling preacher comes by every six months or so. Luther would say, you can do without it. You have the word. Right. And that was was the gist of his letter to the Bohemians. Um, as long as you don't have a properly ordered ministry in a congregation, don't be doing dubious things. Baptize your kids, teach them, and be content with the word. Now, if you can get together, form a congregation, call a pastor, go for it. Bootstrap the whole thing. You know, the hell with the Venetian bishops, which right, is kind of what you know. That call, was the that was the issue.
1: Right. Call one from your own midst. Yeah. And and you know that's biblically mandated. You you can do that. But anyway, back to the original question of...
2: uh, I'm trying to remember what the original question was. Just what do we think of the practice of pre-consecration? That is, consecrating the elements ahead of time and then taking them later, later that day, later that week. uh, You know, what do you want to do? Uh, Taking it to those who couldn't be at the communion.
1: It just muddies the waters.
2: It It is a muddying practice. I could see where there might be times and places where you want to do something and and the idea is you don't have a pastor that can be all over the place all the time and but you do have perhaps a a group of 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 authorized deacons or elders or something i can see where there might be some narrow circumstances like unto a citizen's arrest like unto Um, you know, the authority, the right of a citizen, of of basically saying you, particularly you, go to this particular person on this particular occasion. I I deputize you. I authorize you to do that. I I think that's the nature of authority to be able to do that.
1: So I remember a, a case in California when I was out there. And hearing about this, uh, a fellow Lutheran pastor who decided that he was going to go to Disneyland on Sunday, but he consecrated the elements on Saturday, uh-huh. the church on Sunday, so the people could have communion on Sunday. Mm-hmm. If, if I go into the church and put the elements on the altar and say the words, and then they receive it the next day, isn't that kind of a private mass?
2: no it it would be a private mass if if you alone uh consumed them as well it's in other words you you have a pastor but no people you have the a presider aren't but no people they're there to
1: recipient. hear to hear the verba they they aren't there to uh, be part of the consecration as far as, as
2: witnessing. See, and this is where I think we get into the second error, and some people are going to be upset by this, but, but we have never taught that, that the, the words of consecration, the words of institution, change the bread and the wine into something else.
1: Right, right, right. They
2: reveal what cannot be known that is the mystery of Christ's body and blood that's a hidden thing like the catechism says hidden under or you know to amplify it in with and under however you want to say it you can't perceive it you can't scientifically observationally know it so what's the only way that you know that this bread is unlike any other bread in the bread box the words the words, yeah. They, they reveal what, what you cannot know. That's the nature of consecration. It sets aside something and reveals something about it that you can't know. So that's why you need hearers. So I think this business of pre-consecrating just off, you know, on a Sunday evening, just put it on the altar, nobody's there, consecrate it, blah, 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 even if somebody's there to witness it, so What? See, I think that's an irrelevant act, and I think it's a misunderstanding of the nature of consecration. Consecration sets aside something and reveals something about its use and what it is. But there have to be people who are going to receive it. So really, this kind of runs along with 1 Corinthians
1: 11, uh, let a man discern the body of Christ. And and I love where Norman Nagel used to go with this. Was, was that without the corporate body of Christ, the Church, you don't get the very body of Christ on the altar, and vice versa. So it, it's not a, either the congregation or the consecration. So it's neither receptionism nor consecrationism, but a both-and.
2: See, the, the problem when you go receptionism-consecrationism is that becomes a binary A or B. Right. Right. And, and consecration, they both have right, they both say something right. Consecration says that the words of Jesus are not optional. They must be said and heard. Receptionism says that saying those words is not the whole sacrament because it, you must do what the words say, namely take and eat, take and drink. So the eating and the drinking are as much part of the sacrament as the words and the elements. And they all go together. Now, the error usually comes at the point at which point. So a consecration says, oh, as soon as those words are said, it becomes the body and blood of Christ. The reception says, no, 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 no. When it crosses the plane of the teeth, it becomes the body and blood of Christ. They're both wrong. Becoming is not the issue. Okay, so
1: how do you answer the question when does Christ join himself to the bread and the wine for your forgiveness in a sacramental way?
2: I refuse to answer it. I I, <laughs> I don't I don't have I don't have any data to answer it. I, anything right. I anything I say I'm going to be making it up.
1: Yeah, right. So so you're grasping because what does the text say? It doesn't say. Right. So you you need to just shut up and go with what the text says and, and say, you know, um Personally, what I would say on this, Bill, is when the words have been spoken over the elements, we know for sure that Christ is there, but I'm not saying that He wasn't there before. And when you receive it in your hand and in your mouth, you certainly know Christ is there for you in a personal way and a corporate way together. But I'm not going to say that The leftover elements are no longer the body and blood of Christ. Nor am I going to insist that they are the body. You know, you could
2: have a little bit of fun with this if you wanted, and I'm just, I'm just, you know, kind of going on a on a limb here. But uh, at the consecration, you can definitely say that Christ has just said that this bread and this wine are His body and blood. But He hasn't yet said that they're for me. Mm. Ha ha! So when I receive it, and I hear those words for you. Now, what is for all is for me, and that's really the key. So, it's just like Christ on the cross, he's for all, but is he for me? That's really the question objective, subjective. So, you you know, you could, by analogy, the consecration is like objective justification, and the reception is like subjective justification Christ for all, Christ for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that could and that if, could work. And that way you're ducking the, the, the whole business entirely. Oh, not here, there, not this point, that point. That that kind of slicing and dicing is really going to get you in big trouble. Right. So what, you know, how do you answer this? What whatever, can, whatever keeps the sacrament whole, that's the best practice. Like Luther's in Germany said, "Lasst das Sakrament ganz bleiben." Leave the sacrament whole altogether. And secondarily, whatever gives proper honor and recognition and confesses the pastoral office and its Christ-given authority. So I still stand by my suggestion, deputize very narrowly. That honors the office, <laughs> and it, it keeps consecration, reception, speaking, hearing all together. So you know, mileage may vary, and the CTCR may disagree, but that's 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 what I think. What do you think? I'm not
1: sure that I understand what you're saying. Deputize, because that means let's
2: let's say you're my elder. I say, Craig, go to go to Lois Schmitke and bring her. I authorize you, by virtue of my office, to bring the sacrament to Lois Schmitke on Tuesday.
1: I guess we do this sort of thing with vicars all the time too we we do, yeah, and, and so <laughs> but in an
2: inconsistent a, sort of way,
1: right. so what makes a vicar worthy of preaching but not your elders? uh they've been licensed by a seminary. Well, where's that in the Bible? yeah, right, right
2: right yeah, uh, no, see so, there we've 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 ducked behind an institutional reference, right. right. I would rather I would rather a pastoral office reference because the, according to our confessions, the pastor is a bishop in his own congregation. Hey, bishops ordain, don't they?
1: Well, uh, I would say that as a pastor, you certainly have that authority to ordain, but uh, you may by doing so, forfeit your fellowship with the LCMS because <laughs> well, see uh, we, yeah, we say we don't do that. Yeah, so you're, uh,
2: you're, you're going back to the – you're an institutional right. man so at heart. So if, if yeah. you're
1: going to play in, in this uh, uh, arena, yeah. you have to abide by – excuse me, by these rules. Nice burp there. Okay, and, I'm uh,
2: – I'm down with the idea that we do things all together, so don't be making up procedures. but Because otherwise you get into Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that, and nobody agrees on anything. But I do think that our confessions give us a kind of a matrix of of looking at things, Uh, not a canon law per se, but just a, a gospel way of looking at things, so that we can kind of reason these things through together.
1: See, this is one of the reasons that I prefer the SMP, the Specific Ministry Pastoral Program, uh, to the idea that uh, district presidents can just license laity to consecrate the Lord's Supper and to preach and that sort of thing. Um, At least with the SMP program, we have a sense of ordination. Even though I I might not think that the education that these guys are receiving is the best— uh, That's a secondary least, question. Yeah, at least there's an understanding and a recognition of the importance of ordination, and uh, you know. So I, I applaud that much, but you know, then the logistics is the, is yeah, the you other
2: know where problem. you know where where we've gone off the rails is that we've just seen ordination as some kind of an institutional ceremony, and what it is is authorization. Yes, everybody's got this. The civil sphere has it all the time. So I want to become an L.A. sheriff's police person. Right. So I go to the academy. I study. I jump through all the hoops. I'm examined for my fitness. I take tests. I got to be physically fit. All this kind of stuff. Right. And then I'm sworn into an office. I've been to a swearing-in kind of thing. I'm publicly placed into an office, and I pledge my allegiance to the Constitution, and and that I'm going to defend this. Um, and so there's there's a, a notion that I now have the authority. I, I may have passed the police academy, but until I go through that authorization, I can't do those those things that deputy sheriffs do, right? Because right. I haven't been authorized. And then they give you your badge, and they give you your gun. And that badge and that gun, that's, that's a, those are symbols of your authority now.
1: Now, uh, okay, I know a guy who uh, was Pentecostal, and he was a youth minister or something like that, and he started his own church, and then he discovered the Lutheran confessions, and he started teaching them, and his Pentecostal church became a Lutheran church, uh but he hadn't finished a seminary program or anything like that and his church called him to be their pastor i recognize his ordination as much as i recognize yours or mine he he's been rightly called and ordained by by this congregation uh you know by the lord through the through the authority of the congregation um but i think that there are probably a lot of of uh pastors out there that would really look at him like uh, well, you're not part of any synod or denomination, and, and uh, you know I, I really question your authority to do these
2: things. Well, what, what are your thoughts on that? The, you know the, that's the that's the institutional church versus the church's body of Christ, and and I think th- this is the big mistake we make all the time: is we think the institutional church is the body of Christ, and it's not. Mm. Uh, walter said that now he called that visible church and invisible kind of unfortunate terms but i think yeah. the idea the idea holds that the true church is a hidden mystery it's the sum total of all believers in christ joined to christ and one another by faith but the institutional church what walter called the visible church these are organizations that men build and, and these are, you know, it's like government. It's like it's like any any institution. And it's there to serve the needs and purposes of the kingdom and the body of Christ, but it's not the same thing as the kingdom and the body of Christ. And I think too often we've gotten into this notion that when the synod speaks, then the church has spoken, then God has spoken. And that's something else to realize
1: that, Denominational headquarters, whatever—that's not the church. There's no congregation there. (laughs) that's not. That's still kind of you're still still looking at headquarters.
2: You're still looking at it kind of canonically. But I know what you're trying to say is—is that that's uh, a—that's an institution that exists really for the benefit and to serve the congregations that are its constituent members. You know, people are not members of a synod. Churches are, congregations right. are, and there you're trying to reflect some notion of outward unity and agreement. This is good, because you know, Christianity is chaotic enough as it is. Plus, together you can do more things than you can do on your own. It's hard for your congregation or mine to deploy a missionary, much less start a seminary, sure. right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So there, are, there are like big. Big ticket projects, big picture projects that we need to be all together in. But that's not sort of a super church over the sub churches. Like, you know, there's a McDonald's corporation and then there are all these little franchises all over the place. That's not the church. Yeah.
1: And, and so the the church is the congregation of people, God's people gathered around God's things. Pretty much what the Augsburg Confession says there. It does. That's that's but, the
2: that's the essential church, right? That is. And, the,
1: and so we say, as Missouri Synod Lutheran pastors, synod and district are advisory. Of the church they can come in, give their advice, all they want, and we can or or we can listen or we can ignore it or whatever. And we move forward. We can be disfellowshipped, but that doesn't mean that we're not the church any longer.
2: Yeah. Well, you can be thrown out of the synod and still right. be a, still be a, 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 the church. Right. And you can leave the synod and still be the church. Sure. Is that a good thing? Yeah, it may be. Sometimes synods need to be left. Uh, sometimes uh, being kicked out is the biggest favor you could possibly get, yeah, but it's not something—you you don't want to become a cult or a sect no, no, or, no, 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 or no. some kind of little you know, purity thing off on the side, and that's always, that's always the, the big thing, is that Christianity is at its heart and core, it's a, it's a communion, it's a community, it's a corporate faith. Uh, right. It's personal, yes, but it's not private. This is and I, new, I hope
1: I'm not giving off that vibe that it's like yeah, you know, take wow. him or leave him, eh, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. You, you know, I understand that the denomination does do certain things for the benefit of the of of the churches that are members, you know, a, a seminary Missionaries, that sort of thing, like you point out. You know, hey, even the even the local
2: congregation stuff. is just a local institution. You know, where two or three are Certainly. gathered, there will be an institution. This is inevitable. This is corporate life. Yeah, uh, um Astonished um, Heart. Astonished. It's Heart. a great. It's you. a really really great book. It's a wonderful book. Yeah. So you know, if I to kind of tie up the loose ends of this pre-consecration thing, I would go back to the the original three issues. Whatever you do. Do not mislead people about the nature of consecration. It's not an act of magic, hocus-pocus. We're not changing things. Um, We are saying something about this bread and wine. The Lord is saying something about this bread and wine that can be said of no other bread and wine. And it's for the benefit of the hearers and the eaters and the drinkers. Uh, The second, don't compromise the authority of the pastoral office with this notion that, hey, Anybody can do it. Can is not the issue. May is the issue. May right. anybody do it? Uh, and the third is that gospel necessity to hear the words of Jesus, because that's what makes the sacrament the sacrament. The words. You know, I just kind of
1: think about this in in ways that uh, if we decide that uh, we're going to play policemen and we start pulling people over with a red light in our car, sooner or later this this goes. In a really ugly direction. Oh yes, and, and
2: vigilantism, if, anarchy well, you know. Or just getting in over your head with
1: things you don't really understand, and and saying, "Oh, we don't need a pastor; we can just do this on our own." I think you know, in, in some circles when,
2: we're already there. Yeah, I think I think in some circles we've 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 gone there a, a long time ago. Pietists went there. Yep. Uh, the the whole thing, especially the haugian type pietist lay ministry, quote unquote, was the biggie. And you really now part of it was out of necessity. When you lived in remote areas, you didn't have the luxury of a pastor.
1: Sure, and and like I said, this is one of the reasons that in in our LCMS we have this S P thing, and it, it these are guys who are ordained for that congregation. And not transferable unless they finish the whole MDiv. But in in reality, at least it's understanding that we are rightly calling someone to do these things.
2: We are authorizing people in an orderly way, right, to do these tasks, which are essential to the life of the church. That's you know that's what Melanchthon said. This he says, without the word, the church dies. And that was the principle on which Luther wrote the Bohemians that you, you quoted, that 1523 letter, the Church must never be without the Word. Right. And, and he's confident enough that the Church can sustain itself on the Word, even if it doesn't have the sacrament, which of course gives us the heebie-jeebies. But he's right. He's yeah. right. You can't turn these things into laws. And that's the problem, I think, we turn the confessions into canon law, we turn yep. what Luther said into canon law, and <laughs> the point is, try to think like them. Right. And you're always thinking in sort of in gospel ways, rather than, well, what's the bylaw on this, or what is the what does this committee have to say about <laughs> it? You can't anticipate all is, the possibilities, can yeah, you? Yeah, you're always
1: writing a letter to the seminaries or the synod saying, I need a ruling on uh, this, I need a ruling on that, and... You know, honestly, Um, yeah, you you run into all sorts of well, gospel freedom
2: is scary. Um, It can be, yeah, no, it is. It's it's very frightening because it can lead to a kind of just radical anarchy that is not befitting the people of God either. You're always contending with the old Adam, which is why we have these things, why we have a synod and bylaws and institutions. It's not for the new man in Christ. He doesn't need any of that. He's a free Lord of all. But the old man in Adam, he needs this stuff because he's an anarchist and an individualist. By
1: the way... Uh, if you're my friend on Facebook, you can go to my page. I posted uh, blueprints for a 3D printer. If you live in California, you can print your own plastic <laughs> straws. Just so that you know, it's on my Facebook page. You print your own straws, you can live in anarchy. Speaking of anarchy.
2: <laughs> hey, I think we have beat this thing to death pretty much. We beat everything to death. That's our thing. It's what we do. Um I think we have a little bit of time left at the end. Do you want to take up just a a current issue or two? Sure. Yeah, so this is this is that segment that we call current issues and stuff. All sorts of stuff. Just stuff. I like stuff. Stuff is a (laughs) my Russian friends love that word stuff. Stuff and things. It's like a Swiss Army knife with words. So, Craig, um, we were talking about this crash of a Mexican airplane or yes. an airplane in Mexico. I don't know if the airplane itself was Mexican. But it yes,
1: Jesus saved our lives, says Mexican, or it says Mexico plane passenger who recorded the viral video.
0: A viral and, uh, video.
1: Basically, I'll, I'll give a, play, a rundown on this. Uh, airplane in Mexico. uh I'm trying to find where it was, I can't remember. Doesn't matter. Uh somewhere uh the plane was traveling from Durango. Hey,
2: I got a I got the video here. This is this is taken by a passenger. It's not that long. Let me let me cue it up. All right.
1: Okay. <laughs>
0: Cell phone video captures the moment Aeromexico flight 2431 Begins its takeoff roll down the runway The weather outside growing worse By the second no Suddenly kidding. just as the plane begins to lift It's violently slammed back down to the ground Oh you don't want to go through that Oh no Skidding off the runway into the desert Frantic passengers stepping over each other To escape the burning plane <laughs> stepping Romita, over took the video People are screaming And I was praying I was praying to uh, the name Jesus, at uh, the name Jesus, so Jesus saved our lives. Firefighters rushed to the scene as passengers and crew jumped down the emergency escape chutes. The cabin just started filling with black smoke. Uh, at that point, uh, what we wanted to do was we wanted to try to find the, the nearest exit. Also on the plane, Father Ezequiel Sanchez from Illinois and 15 friends celebrating his birthday.
2: Yes, I nice. do think it was in there.
0: Father Sanchez now being treated for multiple arm fractures. We spoke to him by Skype from his hospital room.
2: If the plane was traveling a little faster before it hit the embankment, or flew a little higher, I don't think we would have walked out with all of us intact.
0: In all, 49 people hospitalized, including the pilot and a passenger, both in critical but stable condition. The regional jet, an Embraer 190, was departing from Durango in northwest Mexico for Mexico City, Durango, just as the weather the suddenly turned violent. Rain, high winds, and hail. No US kidding. Aviation they showed that storm The plane may in. have been hit by a microburst rolling across the airfield. Had that it been happens. any higher than 50 to 70 feet off the ground, there could have been fatalities. Still, it's the latest in a string of Plane crashes in which everyone has gotten out alive. Yeah, so all right.
2: Friend... So then they go through a bunch of uh, recent mishaps. It so actually I... wasn't. It wasn't very high in the air. It's just that 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 moment where the wheels clear the uh, runway and then it slammed back down.
1: Well, I I have audio of the guy praying here, which is really cool. <laughs> Hang on, baby Jesus, this is gonna get bumpy. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> <laughs>
2: So, so <laughs> Miracle, Miraculous, or just plain Dumb Luck? What do you think?
1: Yeah. Uh, That'd be a I'm new game.
2: We should play that as a new, miracle, new home game. Miracle, Miraculous, or just plain Dumb Luck?
1: Well, I think, you know, nine times out of ten, you're going to go with, uh, with Dumb Luck, and I'm probably going to go
2: with, I don't know, uh, could be. Well, you know my take on that, right? That God hides behind Dumb Luck?
1: Yeah, that's true.
2: So I, I'm a big both-ander. I think they're right. I think, I think God saved them. Praise be to God. 103
1: passengers, two are in uh, critical care. Three goats did die, <laughs> Three. and two chickens. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what I want to know is why did they even try to take off?
1: Well, yeah, that's that was really kind of my whole thing. Is is you know if. If God was so involved with all of this, he why stop did stop? Why didn't he just have the pilot say, "You know what? This is this is just you, Harry. We're not." See, and and
2: yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you raised it instead of me. That's that's the intellectual speed bump in this. Right. Is that if God is intervening, you think you might have intervened about mm, I don't know 45 seconds before that, and just well, kind then. of call an FAA hold on this flight while this. Huge storm, and the the video of the storm is impressive. But you don't see that coming and say, "Um, I think we better wait this out.
1: Right, right. Uh, The priest with the multiple fractures had his arm busted to the glory of God, apparently.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's very appropriate for people who do believe in a God who is imminently present with us, like Jesus in the boat, to uh, thank him. For rescuing our lives, uh, th- there's nothing. There's you know, there's nothing um, wrong with that. It's a little questionable to attribute the rescue to the fact that I was praying to Jesus that my prayer actually you know caused this to happen because cause is really really tough. God's God's not going to show His hand that clearly, but uh, I, I put this in the category of mildly miraculous. Okay because nothing no, no laws of physics were violated in the uh in this. it's somewhere between mildly miraculous and just plain dumb lucky but uh uh you know if if a plane falls 30,000 feet out of the sky and everybody walks away uh intact mm okay i'm going to be looking a little more carefully at the right. circumstances of that one certainly but when you look at the wreckage of the plane and there's like no top left to this fuselage
1: yeah they came down Awfully hard and that plane broke up. This
2: was a hard landing. Yeah.
1: They they did come down really hard and, and the plane broke up. Also um, um
2: that the, the little segment at the end that that talked about how this is not the first, but it's one of several occurrences, and they showed some pretty burned-out wreckage where everybody walks away, tells me that those things are survivable. So it's not really a miracle. It is miraculous. It's always miraculous when one gets out of these kinds of things.
1: I I think it's more miraculous when you were on the flight. (laughs) Yes. I think the... The was it a miracle? Yes. Level goes way up when you were on the. Front.
2: I I will not. I cannot argue with that line of reasoning. If, if 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 I'm the one who's crawled out of that wreckage, I I heard a note somewhere. Heard a comment that people are looking for their carry on the luggage. <laughs> Has it's anyone like, seen my MacBook? <laughs> leave it behind. You you know that's right. You can always get a new MacBook. The burning wreckage. You want to get away from it. And and did you catch the crawling over one? Another. Uh, what about yeah. kind of helping the guy next to you? It'd be kind of cool.
1: In the love of Christ, I'm crawling over when you. When
2: you fly, do you ever kind of think about especially if you're near or at one of those exit rows, do you ever think about how heroic am I going to be if I'm called into service? Do you ever kind of stop and think about it?
1: Every every yeah, when I'm in that in that row. You know, but the the flight attendant comes by and says, can you lift 50 pounds? <laughs> and I'm like, if the plane is on fire, I can probably lift about 600 pounds. Yeah, I can lift really? the
2: plane if necessary. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think the adrenaline rush alone should be able to... Uh, right. Yeah. To... I,
1: I'm thinking that 90-year-old lady over there can <laughs> easily lift 50 pounds if the plane's on fire. But I, so, I try to yeah. imagine
2: the scenario in my mind. It's kind of like a rehearsal that uh, am I going to be a coward or a hero? Am I going to be one of those guys that makes the news or am I going to be one of those guys who climbed over other people to get out of the flaming wreckage? Uh, and I'd like to think that I'd be the former, but yeah, you know, I just don't know. That's why I think about it.
1: See, and I'm usually looking around eyeballing suspected terrorists.
2: That's the other thing That's I think about thing, is, so. am I willing to take down a fellow passenger if they get a little too twitchy for me? Oh, yeah. You know, because I've had a few seatmates that, are, that were... Just borderline. <laughs> it was like I was watching them very, very, very closely. But I, I'm thinking to myself, "Am I willing to take them down?"
1: You ever sat down? Can next I take them down?
2: I'm not exactly like the strongest person in the world here. But uh,
1: you ever sat down on a plane next to a guy with like a big shaggy beard, and he smells kind of funky, and you're like, "This guy's just giving me the heebie-jeebies just by <laughs> being here." I,
2: I I have flown quite a bit. I have sat next to. All kinds. Trust me. Although I I read of one recently that I'm not going to talk about here, but some guy was having a little too good time with himself. Oh, (laughs) my. See that? I haven't haven't experienced that and do Uh, not want to.
1: He, he he and he didn't have the row to himself. The,
2: <laughs> no, no, apparently not. And the airline Ooh. was unsympathetic to the the seatmates. So oh no, you've got to be kidding! No, me. It made made the uh, made the headlines. You know, yeah, flying is boring, but really, people, come on. That's when you
1: just bust out your camera, pointed at the guy, and going take a You're nap. You're going viral. That may not that out.
2: may not help the situation, Craig.
1: You're going viral, pal. Yeah,
2: right. That that may not help the situation. I'm (laughs) just—that's when
1: he takes the blanket off of his lap. Oh, uh, yeah.
2: Is this how we want to end the show today? Sure. Are are we happy with that? Does that? Does that? Hang on, baby Jesus. This is gonna get bumpy. (laughs) All right. I think it's a miracle we made it out of this show alive. So I'm not sure anyone did. Let's just leave it at that. You can follow us on Facebook. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and other podcast feeds. You can tune in to all of our episodes at our website, godwhispers.org. And you can email us with your white-hot theological questions at Mm. godwhispers at gmail.com. And Craig, you had a Facebook thing you wanted to mention?
1: That's right. Be sure to go to my page,
2: get those blueprints if you're a
1: Californian. You can download it and make your own straw
2: make your own plastic Plastic straw
1: with a 3d printer and and this is my nod toward anarchy
2: to do this (laughs) on that note thank you for listening